Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Can't stop love. Can't stop love, Aaron. Can't stop it. What do I have to Zoom for? I do this. <laughs> this is our Zoom. Good night. I am Chris Cuomo, right. and welcome to Primetime. Federal guidelines to slow the spread are set to expire tomorrow. No state appears to have met the benchmark to reopen. That is 14 straight days of declining number of cases. Not one state has met it. The president's leadership in this moment? I'm not really sure about needing testing after all. Really, for the love of logic, just two days Since Pence said we should all be proud about the step up on testing, when will the double speak end? No wonder so many people are looking to governors for guidance. We also have another big story tonight. What is the real deal about research on a new COVID treatment? Is this about hope or the key researcher study? For all the doubt, we do know something and it is amazing. I is replaced by even illness becomes wellness. That saying was from Malcolm X. We must be together as ever as one. Let's get after it. All right, our nation's top infectious disease expert just said today that there is a drug that may be able to block this virus. If you look at the time to recovery being shorter in the remdesivir arm, it was 11 days compared to 15 days. And that's a p-value for the scientists who are listening of 0.001. So that's something that, although a 31% improvement doesn't seem like a knockout 100%, it is a very important proof of concept. Because what it is proven is that a drug can block this virus. Okay, let's all say the name of the drug together. Ready? Remdesivir. The drug is called remdesivir. You're going to hear it a lot. It's not easy to say, but now you know. The FDA has reportedly fast-tracked it. That's what's happening right now for emergency use. That was Dr. Fauci, obviously, talking about the drug. He says the data shows it does have a clear-cut effect in diminishing a patient's recovery time, okay? Not a cure. It diminishes recovery time, like Tamiflu. So what is the real deal about who it helps and how much, okay? We all want a cure. Let's be very clear. But we can't invest in hype and false hope. It only weakens our ability to have the resolve to fight the disease. Now, The good news, key researcher behind the clinical trial for the drug is our guest tonight, Dr. Andre Khalil. Doc, thank you for being on primetime. Thank you very much, Chris, I appreciate it. No, hey, I appreciate you taking the opportunity. Uh, You're the best guest for this. So uh, give us your take. What is your level of enthusiasm 
about this drug's efficacy and what do you believe its efficacy to be? So this is a very important question, Chris. Um, you know, I'm one of the principal investigators for the NIH trial. This trial, uh, it, it was run uh, mostly in the United States with about uh, 50 different sites here, about 20 sites outside the United States, uh, South Korea, Singapore, Japan, Denmark, uh, uh, Germany, and so uh, in, in Spain. So the, this is a very large trial sponsored by the NIH. Uh, uh, Dr. John Beigel, uh, it, it was uh, the lead on the process that I age with a large group of um, very experienced investigators. And here in the University of Nebraska, uh, I'm the, mm -hmm. uh, the principal investigator. And we start actually this trial right on February 21st. Uh, we enrolled the very first patient of this very important trial uh, in February. It was one of the patients that came on the, on the cruise, on the Diamond Princess cruise. This okay. trial, actually, the, the, you know, the, the, the very interesting uh, aspects of this trial is that a very strict methodologically, so this is a, uh, it is as strict as it can be in terms of a scientific methodology. We're talking about a... All right, so it's legit. Uh, it's it legit. The study qualified. It wasn't too small a sample. It wasn't double blind. It was peer reviewed. It checks all the boxes. That's good so to know. Not, uh, so, so we so should listen to it. Chris, yeah, absolutely. Chris, importantly, it's not peer-reviewed yet. So, but the, the preliminary results are so the, pre, the the preliminary results are so important that we decide that uh, this has to be out to the public that everyone has to know because we the results are so significant from the statistical perspective that uh, you know we cannot just hold and wait for a whole process to go through and see what's going to happen because we believe that. Well, let's talk at about this why point, that is, Doc. Yeah, let's talk right. about that. Now, yeah. let's just be very clear. You're a researcher, you're a highly skilled academic and clinician. You're not a politician. I'm not asking you to sell the drug uh, to people. But Wall Street went crazy and releasing preliminary data is unusual. You are saying the same thing Dr. Fauci said, which is, yeah, but this data matters so much that we needed to get out. Why does it matter so much? It's not like uh, this is a pill that you can take where you'll never get this. It's not equivalent to a vaccine. Why did you think that the research was so important it needed to come out? Great question, uh, Chris. So the, here's the deal. Uh, this is really, really important. Uh, you know, this is what I've done for 20 years. I'm, I'm very much, as you said, I'm a clinician. I'm at the bedside taking care of my patients. This is my first, the first thing I do in life. And, and together with my clinical care, I've done clinical research for all these years. So this is really what I do for life. That's my 24-7 uh, activity. Uh, and, you know, when we, when, we, when we participate in a trial that strict, that robust in terms of double-blind and placebo-controlled uh, with the sponsor from the NIH, uh, it really, it, this is, we are talking about probably at this point in the middle of this pandemic, uh, there is no trial that has been done with such a strict methodology. So this is the first, that's very important because, you know, as you know, there's a lot of uh, pseudoscience going out there, a lot of fake science out there. This is absolutely true science. And, and that's why I'm participating in this trial, because I believe that this trial really could be, you know, could bring some important findings. So that's the first thing. All right. That's so none of, the chlor none of the chloroquine stink is on this study. Uh, this was done in a different way, so you have more confidence in it. But why are the preliminary findings so potent? You know, what is the eureka moment here that people have to know right now? So there's two things that are very important for me, and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that as not only as a researcher, but as a clinician, as somebody that takes care of patients every day. So there was, so the two findings that we know today uh, that Dr. Fauci mentioned was, 
one is that uh, the, the time to recovery is reduced by four days. This is not a small, uh, small deal. This is a big deal because it's four days out of, you know, from 15 to 14 days, about a third of the time that the patients are going to require oxygen, are going to require uh, respiratory, you know, uh, respiratory support, they're going to require to be in a hospital, you reduce by a third. So why this is important? Because if you ask me, if I would stay, you know, if I would stay two weeks in a hospital and two weeks minus four days, uh, I would, I mean, there is nobody uh, that would tell that they would prefer to stay for more days because every day that you stay in a hospital, uh, you increase the chance of complication, increase the risk of complication, the risk of death. So that's for, from the patient perspective. This is uh, this is definitely something very important because you're gonna really have a, a third reduction on your time to recovery. The second thing that uh, is as important as well is that there was a trend, even though not statistically significant, because of the, the trial was not powered for mortality. But there was a trend for improving mortality from 11.6 to 8 percent with remdesivir. So if you put together, people a, died. You know, Three percent reduction in death. Exactly. If you if you put together almost four percent reduction in death with a four with a, you know four days reduction uh, on on the need for hospital and respiratory support, uh, this is not something to take lightly, especially when it comes mm. from a trial that is that robust. Now, this is not a cure, as I said in the beginning. This is not a cure. Right. Is, is almost so let's no let's talk about anything that. Let's, let's talk about if that. You brought the mortality, if you brought the mortality down to zero. And if you had absolutely, absolutely 100% cure, yeah, this is not a cure. This is a treatment. And that's why the trial. I totally get it. Uh, to look for other therapies as well. This is the beginning of the process. So let's talk context here. Tamiflu, which people are familiar with. You get the flu. You get the pill of Tamiflu. I know this isn't a pill. This is an IV treatment uh, that has to be done in the hospital at this point. But uh, that's not a cure either. Right. It reduces the length of the flu. That's the same dynamic we're talking about here. But in terms of whom it is great uh, information for, not me, uh, somebody who had a nasty case but stayed home uh, or somebody who gets a case and doesn't have to go in the hospital or somebody who goes in the hospital but doesn't have an extreme case. This is a drug that at least as tested was about extreme cases in the hospital where this was an IV treatment. So we're not talking about something that is a pill that we can pop and it'll make what you deal with at home shorter in duration. So this is a very limited population we're talking about with the drug. Is that a fair point? It's a very fair point, Chris, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought this up. This is a very, very, very important point. This this drug is only to be given for people with moderate to severe uh, COVID disease. These are patients that are actually not only have the infection, but they have the infection already spread to the lungs, causing pneumonia. They require to be in a hospitalized. They require to receive oxygen or mechanical ventilation. So these are definitely patients that are in the more severe uh, spectrum of the disease. And, and that's that was the goal of the clinical trial. This is not a medication that uh, should be given to anyone uh, that don't have, don't meet the what we met in inclusion criteria of the trial, meaning that you have to have pneumonia from the coronavirus, you have to be hospitalized, requiring oxygen and or requiring more and respiratory support. This is a very important point, Chris. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. And it is an intravenous medication that requires a intravenous catheter to be administered as well. Mm. Let me get one public policy point uh, from you before I, I uh, run out of time with you. And I want to just say in advance, Dr. Khalil, I know how busy you are. 
with processing this study right now and your other clinical work. I really appreciate you taking the time because the country's hearing about this now. They need to hear it straight right now. And they're not going to do better as a source uh, than you. You've got no agenda other than the science of this. So people will hear about this. Remdesivir. This is it. This is the cure. We can reopen now. We're going to be okay. Stop with all this isolation, all the mask craziness. We have something that'll keep us from dying. Let's reopen. Let's be more ambitious. What is your caution? Well, I can tell you with 100% certainty, uh, Rendesivir is should not change even even you know even with the data we have today, with the positive data that we can shorten the time of disease, we can potentially save lives, Rendesivir. Rendesivir will not do anything to in terms of public health. And Rendesivir is strictly is going to benefit people with moderate to severe disease that are right in a hospital. So just having the, the Rendesivir available, let's say if the FDA approved the Rendesivir available, it's great. It's going to be great to benefit patients that are sick, very sick from COVID in a hospital. But when it comes to public health, uh, Rendesivir is going to have absolutely no impact because Rendesivir is not a drug to be used to prevent an infection. It's not a drug to be used in somebody with a mild infection with, you know, at home that will improve, will cure without any medications. Rendesivir is it's a, for a very specific, a small proportion of patients that get really sick, that have a high risk of death. Uh, and this is the patient population who benefit from Rendesivir. So Rendesivir I should not have uh, any significant impact in terms of public health policy, in terms of opening or closing. Uh, this, this is a whole different subject like that will not be influenced by the availability of Frandesivir. This is a very important thing to understand that prevention and treatment are two very different things, and they should not be confused at all. And I'll tell you the hopeful thing. We finally have a tool in the box. Remdesivir is the first thing that we know with science behind it. You can give to someone who's in extremis, who's very sick, and it will help them. That's the first thing we've been able to say that about with certainty. And a big reason we can say it is because of you, Dr. Khalil, and your team. Thank you for killing yourself to do this research and getting it right and getting it done so soon. Thank you, sir. God bless you and your family. Stay healthy. Thank you. It's a team effort. Lots of people working together, NIH, investigators all over the world. It's a huge team effort at University of Nebraska. It's just, it's, it's really an effort of so many people, and I cannot thank everyone here, but uh, it's just the beginning. Uh, we're going to find more treatments and more, you know, and more, you know, more things that hopefully are going to improve the, uh, the lives of all these patients uh, being affected by the disease. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Chris. Doctor, thank you for taking it. Made a big difference. I can't get a better source from my audience than you. Uh, be well. Appreciate it. Uh, so just quick, quick sum up. We finally have a tool in the box. Uh, we're losing way too many people. You know the ratio of people who go on ventilators to get off? It's not good. In fact, it's shockingly bad. Now there's something that maybe will help. It's for the worst cases. Um, you know, the moderate to severe in the hospital, but at least we have something. Now, is it a cause to leave your house and to start being cavalier? No, and I don't know why you people are hyping it that way online. I don't know why Wall Street traded up the way they did on this. I don't know, other than it's organized gambling. So see it for what it is. There is cause for hope, but it is not a cure. We don't have to worry less about getting the disease because of this, all right? Now, reopening talk, okay? It, it's as contagious as anything has been. I know I'm hearing it, you're hearing it. We all want to get going. A big part of the equation is masks. And I got to be honest, I don't know what the heck the deal is. So let's bring in Sanjay Gupta because, man, we've gone like full cycle with this. 
Nobody needs masks. Don't touch the mask. Let other people have the masks. Now everybody needs a mask. What's the deal and why? Next. We've done incredible with the testing over the next coming weeks. You'll see some, some astonishing numbers. I don't know that all of that's even necessary. What? If I had any hair left, I would rip it out. The day before yesterday, Pence stood there proud next to Trump and told you all, be proud today because this is momentous. The massive step that the federal government took in working with the states to get testing prep to a whole new level so we can reopen. Literally Monday. And now the president says he doesn't even know if testing is necessary. Listen, let's state TV and all the POTUS patsies over there explain to the faithful how it's okay that he said this and he's being misconstrued. It's a bunch of bunk. It's not okay. It is poisonous pandering to ignorance. And as a result, are you really surprised that states, especially red states, right? Almost all of the 21 states that are going to lift restrictions early on businesses and otherwise, where are they going to get their guidance? Why should they believe anything hard and fast? And it doesn't appear any of those states met the federal guidelines of 14 days of cases on the decline. But can you be surprised when the president changes his message every other day? Liberate your states. Don't stay home. Testing is everything. I'm not so sure about testing. Of course, you're going to have this. And it is just appalling from leadership. That's not playing politics. It's truth. Now, let's get truth on something else here. Let's bring in Dr. Sanjay Gupta and talk about masks. Okay. now I happen to have a very fetching mask that a friend of mine made for me. I will model it for you. Look, it is made to cover even a pie hole as big as mine. This was made by my beautiful young friend, Soleil, Sanjay's daughter. Uh, It is a beautiful fabric mask. Now, Doc, you and I have been talking masks, uh, it seems, forever here, and we seem to have gone in a 360 about it. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, initially, the, the, the guidance was you don't need masks because, uh, you know, first of all, the, the uh, masks that healthcare workers are using, you save those for healthcare workers. There was a shortage of them. So the other types of masks, like the one you're showing there, weren't necessarily designed to protect the user. I think what changed at some point uh, several weeks ago was the now the the sort of acknowledgement that a mask like that could protect other people from the user. So if you wore that mask uh, out in public, Chris, and you had the virus, uh, you could actually decrease the amount of virus that you would shed into the environment. So it's it's a way to to mitigate the spread. It's not perfect by any means. You know, the N95 fitted mask, that's the one that's actually going to be the best in terms of protecting the user. But a mask like this would would offer some benefit uh, towards decreasing the amount of virus being put out into the environment. That's a good thing. I mean, especially as we're trying to slow down the spread. That was the thinking, Chris. It seems to have become a little bit of a touchstone for people that if you have to wear a mask, that's a severe restriction. That's the real deal. You know, I talked to Governor DeWine last night in Ohio, and he had a really interesting and, by the way, honest and candid um, answer for why he was not making it mandatory to wear a mask in a retail store. And his answer was simple. I think people should wear them. I'm not making it mandatory because the pushback was so strong that it was a no, don't do that to us. We don't want to wear them when we go into retail stores. What is it about the mask, Sanjay, 
that you think is such a litmus test for people about whether or not a restriction is tolerable? I think I think it's three three things. One, one is the the point that you just made. I think it, it hasn't been explained very well to people. So uh, I think they lost a little bit of faith in the explanation. Wait, you, you told me I don't need them. Now you tell me I need them. So you know I don't trust you guys anymore. Second is the liberty. Don't tell me what I can and cannot do. Um, the third is this idea. I think the misconception that you know you're, people aren't doing it to protect themselves. You know, if if I frame the, the the reasoning and saying, hey, look, you're not doing it to protect yourself. You're doing it to protect the people around you. You're doing it so that you don't spread the virus, which you may have in your nose and mouth, and not even realize it because you could be completely without symptoms and still have the virus and still be spreading it. I think if people were to understand that better, uh, maybe they'd be more likely to do it. Um, if, if, you, if you can keep a safe distance from someone, you probably don't need it, but it's hard as people start to go out more in public now and uh, you don't know, did I keep a safe you know, six foot distance from everybody around me for the entire time I was out? If you're not confident you can do that, you should wear a mask so that you don't inadvertently mm. infect somebody else. Yeah, and the states are doing it state by state, whatever the rule is. They're different in different places. New York has the rule that you just outlined. You know, something really interesting that I saw from the reopenings. Every state that is reopening has created a new assumption in the impact models that the White House uh, is using. And every addition to it has increased the death projection. Each week, the death projection is going up. Now, is that just a natural, assumptive consequence of time? Or is there a coefficient or is there an added basis for a boost because of early reopenings. I, I think the early reopenings are definitely uh, fueling these changes in the models. I've talked to several of the people who are authoring these models and asked them about, you know, how, what are their inputs? How are they actually coming up with these numbers? And that definitely fits into it. What else fits into it, Chris, and you, you've talked about this, your brother's talked about it, is this is not looking as much like a curve, right, in places like New York and many places. It looks like a plateau, you know, so we've gotten up mm-hmm. to this, this certain amount, and then it's just sort of flattened out there. Flattening the curve was what we were supposed to do, not create a plateau, and that's why you're seeing the significant change in numbers. Chris, I'll remind you that uh, just over a month ago, the same modelers, IMHE modelers, said the death toll will be closer to 90,000, and then they reduced mm-hmm. it to 60,000. Why? Because the, the physical distancing stay-at-home measures were working. And, and in some ways, they were working better than even the modelers anticipated. People were really abiding by it. They were checking people's cell phone data, actually checking their mobility anonymously, obviously. But they were trying to figure out, are people actually staying home? And the answer was yes, uh, more than they expected. That brought the numbers na- down. But now they're seeing that the numbers are sort of flattened. That's making the numbers come up. They're supposed to start coming down already. They've also added probable infections into the equation, Chris. You'll remember that's also driven up the numbers. And then this last point, how do we account for the reopening in these models? I, I got to tell you, you know, and I, and I don't mean to poke fun at the modelers because, you know, they're, they're, this is hard work. But all these models are wrong. Some are useful, as we say. The range is huge. Like if you look at the IMHE model, the range is somewhere between 40,000 and 140,000, right? We focus on sort of the, the middle number, but it's a huge range that they're providing, which, you know, kind of, kind of basically is, you know, uh, understandable. We, we really don't know for certain where this is headed. But right now, the, the projected numbers of deaths do seem to be going up. Well, look, I mean, to be fair to them, you know, you get asked to model a projection 
uh, with an assumption built in that a state has to have 14 days of cases trending down, right. not just a slowed increase rate. Um, and so you must start doing your modeling and your projections. And now all, none of the 21 states that are reopening or about to reopen have met the standard. Your model is shot. You know, you don't have a chance of having any real uh, beta of accuracy on that. And the the hard part of it is nobody's correcting them. Nobody's good. The president came out today and said, I don't even know that testing is needed. So what the hell the use is a standard? Why even have it? That that was that was uh, that was surprising, I think, given that everybody I know around the president, I talked to many people on the coronavirus task force, has been telling him, has told him, will continue to tell him that not only is testing important, it's it's the, it's the pivotal thing. Everything else sort of revolves around the testing. You can't make any of these other decisions unless you got eyes on this. And, you know, it's it's going to continue to be important. We will argue. I think people will argue about what is the right number of tests that are needed. And, you know, the Harvard roadmap, they say all Ultimately, by July, you need 20 million tests a day. And just to clarify, that doesn't mean, you know, uh, the population of the country is only 350 million, roughly. So several people will get tested several times in order to start giving people Mm. confidence to return to the workplace. Maybe the answer is somewhere in between. Maybe it's not 20 million a day. Who knows what it's going to be? But it's a lot more, Chris, by all accounts than we're doing now. Well, look, I mean, what we're really going to battle ultimately uh, is going to be the X factor of fatigue. And, you know, my uh, best sense from my reporting and my knowledge of the players is that the president is betting on fatigue, that people are going to get tired of this. They're going to want to reopen. And every little suggestion, liberate your states. I don't even know that testing is necessary. All these little things, hyping up um, the, the drug that they came up with today, making it sound like it's almost a cure. This is all to push people towards fatigue, and I think that's going to be the biggest battle. We'll see how it plays out, and I think we're going to see sooner than we expected. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, you are a gift. Thank you for being on the show tonight. You got it, Chris. Anytime. And thanks to Lay for the mask. It's awesome. I can't believe I've kept it away from the girls this long because, they, you know, this is the best-looking thing in the house. Beautiful. And it covers my mouth, which is a double bonus. California has been taking a much more cautious approach than any of these obviously 21 states that are reopening now. Why? What do they see that other states are discounting or ignoring altogether? We have the mayor of Los Angeles here, another lucky guest. Why? His city is about to be the first city in a nation to do something that is very significant. What is it? Next. Some important breaking news to tell you about tonight. L.A. is going to become the first major city to offer free COVID tests to everyone. Now, it's a generous move, but it's also a nod to desperation. Why? You know nothing if you don't test and you can't trace. You don't know what kind of scale of what problem you're having, especially when you talk about big population centers. We are so clueless about the reality. We don't even know how many dead there are. Because of that, numbers in the state are stabilizing in California, okay? But they're still going up. So let's bring in the mayor of Los Angeles. Obviously, Mayor Eric Garcetti has become a household name. Welcome back to primetime. Great to be with you. You look good. I like the high and tight, the new haircut. Thank you. The missus did it. 
My joke is that when I asked her to cut my hair, she said, okay, and wanted to start with a straight blade right here, Mayor. I thought that was a bad sign. Uh, but we my wife gave me a cut. So, it looks uh, good in front. It looks uneven in the back, but you can't see it and I can't see it, so we're happy. No, you're looking good. We'll take it. We're blessed. Uh, all right, so uh, let me play proxy for the president for a second. What are you doing, Garcetti? I don't even think you need all these tests. I, I'm not even that sure they're necessary. That's what the president said today. And here you are letting everybody get tested for free. Obviously, you're going to favor people with symptoms. But why are you wasting the money? The testing's not even that important, says the president. I have a different philosophy. We all know this is a silent killer. It moves quietly through the population. And why it's so important for people who don't show symptoms to get tested is because oftentimes they're the super spreaders because they don't know that they have that infection. And so it's always been our goal. We stood up our first testing centers on our own with our own firefighters in our own geography, paying for it with our own dollars and looking for our own labs at 40 days ago. And just 40 days later, we're very proud to have the first widespread testing for non-symptomatic people in any major American city. I think it's something that we hopefully can all get towards because even when we do that, it's still not enough tests as you've heard, but it's a great and a bold step forward. And I'm very proud of, of our firefighters and everybody who's helped stand this up. Um, when you offer the tests, do you have the money, the manpower and the materials uh, to apply all those tests to get them processed and do it in a timely fashion and find people who have it and may have contacted others? We believe so. And we've been, you know, opening that aperture, as it said, you know, we've been widening who can get tested every single day. Yesterday, it was construction workers. The day before, it was taxi drivers and rideshare drivers. The week before, it was uh, people without symptoms who work in critical industries like our medical profession and first responders, grocery clerks. So each step we've taken, at the end of the day, we still have additional tests left. To us, that was a good sign that even as we thought the first day we were telling people with no symptoms in these industries that they could get tests, that we'd be overwhelmed, we weren't. And together with the County of Los Angeles, which has been a superb partner too, we believe together that now we can offer to everybody living in the County of Los Angeles starting tomorrow, with or without symptoms, we can offer you a test, get you those results back in a day, two, maximum these days is three, and also go into places like our senior homes, our homeless population, and have a whole nother surge in those areas because those folks can't necessarily come to testing centers. And that's a critical part of the strategy. Perspective. Uh, Florida, over the weekend, the beaches, uh, people go, they're all over the place. It does not slow down Governor DeSantis' uh, decision to move forward with reopening. California had a similar thing happen in areas uh, where people were all over the beaches. The word is that it was uh, a set of breaks uh, for both the city and the state level, that we are not ready to do anything aggressive. Why was the same stimulus, people going to the beach, cause for completely opposite conclusions um, for two different states? Why didn't you see it the way Florida did, which was people want to get back out there, Garcetti, let them do it. Well, I think as long as we do these steps in a smart way, we assess how great is the need first, second, how big is the risk, and then third, what safety measures can you apply to deal with that risk? That there's nothing we won't be able to do necessarily in the future, but we have to be really careful. And as a region, we've got to move together. Los Angeles County kept our beaches closed, but to the north and south of us, some were open. 
Uh, down in San Diego, they thought about it carefully. They spaced people out. You look in places like Australia, where they've opened beaches from six to nine in the morning for exercise, and that's it. You really get people who aren't going to be loitering and tanning and being close to each other. So I don't think you should take anything off the table. You just have to be really smart and don't be overly anxious. This isn't about scoring political points. This is about saving lives while restoring a slightly better quality of life and economic prosperity to more people. And that's the lens that I take. You know, and right now you're getting a little bit of a break. You guys have a little different summer schedule for schools there, but schools are the boogeyman. Um, you don't want to mess with schools and kids because if it goes wrong, uh, the political payback is going to be harsh and fast. But you can't get people back to work if you can't get their kids back to school. Now, again, the summer gives you a little bit of a hedge because a lot of kids aren't in school in the summer. Um, but do you accept that reality that until you can make it safe enough to send kids back to school, you can't really get people back to work. No question. You know, a mother or father can't go back to work with a peace of mind if their kids are by themselves at home. Um, we have to think about the kids first. They need to catch up on their education. They need to move forward with their development. But secondarily, you're exactly right, Chris. This is an economic issue. It's a childcare issue. And let's not forget those kids that even as we open up schools with new rules, that have pre-existing conditions. They're not going to go back to school anytime soon, and we have to make sure we take care of them, provide for them to get an education at home, even as teachers are in the classroom. So this is going to be tough on teachers. It's going to be challenging for school districts. But I do think we do have enough time to think that one through for the fall. And probably as we're seeing in places like Denmark or whatever, maybe it's fewer hours, maybe it's fewer kids at a time. But we got to get some kids back into the classroom, and I'm confident we can find safe ways to do that, especially with temperature tests, checks and tests at the schools as well. Yeah, I'm hearing a few hours in a lot of different places. That would be that would be so sad because we already don't have our kids in school um, enough. But, you know, you have to deal with the situation as you find it. Mayor Eric Garcetti, I appreciate it. One last quick thing. As far as you know, on the state level, uh, is California uh, still resolved to follow the CDC guideline of 14 days of cases on the way down before reopening? That's the measure that our governor put out there, whether it be a formal measure or not, because sometimes as you get more and more tests, you see it go up artificially just because more people are getting tested. But looking at deaths, mm -hmm. for sure, and hospital admissions, those are the two biggest ones. And, and lastly, let me just say I appreciate what you said about masks. I don't know if it's a guy thing, but real men wear masks and we shouldn't be sh uh, afraid of being seen with masks. So I'll go out on this one. Let's see. Let me test you. What is the movie where... Uh, Andre the Giant said, men in masks cannot be trusted. Princess uh, Bride. No. Ooh, that's oh, that's a nice looking mask. Bride, of like... course. Yeah, that's a Princess Bride, worry, my nobody's favorite. Perfect. Hey, I'm storming the castle, okay? <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Take care, Mr. Mayor. All right, Take care. Let's go to break. That was good. That was a good line. Have fun storming the castle. Who said it? <laughs> Billy Crystal. All right, who was his wife? Carol Kane. You seen her in The Hunters? Amazing. All right, Florida's governor bragged at the White House, how well his state is faring in comparison to others in this fight. But what we may not know is the full picture, specifically this. There's been growing curiosity about the death toll in this country from COVID. Two reasons. One, it ain't easy to count. Why? Because there are a lot of people who died without being tested, so you don't know what the cause of death was. That's a fair reason. But then there's another reason that may be specific to Florida in particular, medical examiners saying officials are blocking them from releasing their own list of coronavirus deaths. 
Is there any good reason for that? Let's talk to a journalist who is deep inside and helped break the story. Next. All right, look, I know the numbers that you're flying all over the place, and I know it's hard to trust them. Uh, and I'm going to give you a new reason to be distrustful of the numbers and new reason to let us do our job and vet these numbers. Florida is a story out of there. Medical examiners, they're the ones who keep count of deaths, right? In all sorts of emergencies. It's a, a typical public protocol, and it's something that you almost always have access to. You pay for it. Why wouldn't you have access to the information, especially now? But in this instant circumstance with coronavirus, the Tampa Bay Times reports that the state made them the medical examiners, stop releasing that information to you. Kathleen McGorry was digging into this for the times when the state pulled the data. Uh, Kathleen, uh, thank you for joining us on primetime. Can you hear me and see me okay? I can hear you. Thanks for having me. Don't adjust your camera. It's just a very extreme haircut. Uh, now, let me ask you something. In reading through the piece, I don't see you. You went out of your way okay, to layer the reporting about the different rationales uh, for holding the data. But I think they all stink. I mean, they didn't give you one good reason other than privacy of people with COVID. But since when is that a public policy uh, exception for putting out data on a mass scale? Yeah, they haven't quite provided us a, a reason for why they're withholding this information yet. And, and we're still pushing for it. Um, but it's, it's still not information we've gotten. You know, we've been asking for it for about 10 days. You got an answer from the governor's office, which was basically a we're awesome. Um, but look, there is curiosity going all over the country about the numbers. But usually it's because there hasn't been enough testing to understand why people uh, may have met their demise and whether or not it was COVID. That's not what you're dealing with in Tampa Bay. What were you hearing from medical examiners about their darker suspicions about why they were being told to stop doing something that they always do routinely? Right. I mean, so you're absolutely right. Uh, the medical examiners have been counting the dead in, in times of statewide crisis since 1992. It's kind of pro forma for them to be compiling this list. Um, you know, and I had been doing some reporting uh, a few weeks ago, just some very basic reporting to try to learn what the medical examiners were seeing on the ground. Uh, and somebody said, well, why don't you get this list? And I said, okay, that, that makes sense. So I, I requested the list from the medical examiners commission. I got it. And uh, a colleague, Rebecca Willington and I wrote a story about it. And at the time, the medical examiners commission list was uh, about 10%, uh, the, the count was about 10% higher than the official state count. Um, so we wrote about that. We wrote about all the reasons why there would be some differences between the two counts. Um, and then a couple days later, I attempted to get an updated copy of that list, something journalists do all the time, and was told that I couldn't get a copy of that list uh, anymore. There were some conflicting reasons why. At first, I was told it was confidential. Then I was told that the state might need to redact it. Um, you know, and that's kind of the, the situation that we're in right now. Uh, you know, when in talking to some of the medical examiners, what they're telling us is that this uh, decision was precipitated by a call from the State Department of Health. Um, and we know that the State Department of Health has tried to apply some pressure to some other agencies to keep this data under wraps. Um, and that's kind of informed where we are right now in our thinking. What is the official and then the unofficial feeling about why 
they would want to keep it under wraps. Yeah, uh, well, the the I don't know that there's an official reason uh, necessarily, again, because they haven't given us a reason yet. Um, you know, they're telling us that they have some privacy concerns around this data. Uh, it's it's questionable if, if once you are deceased, if the same type of privacy, you know, protections apply to you. Um, but I think the, the unofficial thinking behind is that, you know, the state just doesn't want this number out there. It's another number. It's confusing. Um, and some public health experts have been critical of the way that the state is, is keeping its count of the debt here in Florida. How so? Well, so there, there are two different ways of doing this, right? The medical examiners are counting the dead based on the county in which the person died and the state in which the person died. Now, the State Department of Health is looking specifically at Florida residents. So in order to be included in the state's count of COVID death, you have to have been a, a, a full-time resident of the state of Florida. Um, why does that matter? Well, we have a lot of snowbirds in Florida. We have a lot of mm -hmm. seasonal residents, part-time residents, um, and visitors, right? So public health experts are telling us that for the count to kind of include those people who were infected in Florida, who died in Florida, you know, and, and to exclude them because their driver's license says New York or Ohio, that that's not really painting an accurate picture of the epidemic here in Florida. And most snowbirds, by the way, are obviously later in life, uh, people who are more susceptible to this virus uh, and it's more deadly for them as well. Uh, one other quick thing. Have you guys found any other uh, example of where on any type of scale the state used privacy to redact or remove cause of death and disclosure of the same in the state? Well, the Miami Herald has done some terrific reporting. We know that the State Department of Health reached out to the Miami-Dade medical examiner and actually asked them or advised them not to release their information about deaths to the Miami Herald, um, uh, citing uh, a law that applies very specifically. It's a statutory exemption to our, our public records laws that applies very specifically to records created um, for the State Department of Health. And the right. county attorneys in Miami-Dade read that um, or, or, you know, had that communication, they read the statute and then they decided they didn't buy it. You know, they thought that their death records were still public record uh, and they did, in fact, give them to the Miami Herald. Um, you know, we've seen other instances where the DeSantis administration has not been as forthcoming with information as reporters would have liked. Uh, for a while, the DeSantis administration was releasing the aggregate number of people who had right. the infection in nursing homes but not specifically which nursing homes had infections. And it wasn't until a coalition of newspapers led by the Herald that the Tampa Bay Times joined, threatened to sue, that we got that granular information that, that the public needs. Yeah, and also, I mean, I was just asking the question because I just, in looking into the story today, I couldn't find another example, at least over the last 10 years, um, of the state keeping death information on the basis of privacy. Uh, there is that one discrete law. Well, this was only done for our own internal purposes. But in terms of these disclosures, they've never used privacy or because of the cause of death before. But anyway, Kathleen, thank you so much for the reporting that you guys are doing. Uh, this is going to go much deeper, Kathleen McGrory. And you're welcome here to tell the story as it continues. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks.
Now, McGrory was already fair to them, but the Florida state response, just so you know here, you know, a surplus of fairness, is reporting deaths by residency is the appropriate method utilized to calculate disease rates, which allow for a more accurate analysis of disease impacts on populations through the incorporation of demographic data, a critical aspect of public health planning. Now, listen, I I don't buy it. Why? Because whether you're a resident or not, if you're in a place and they have to figure out public health planning, they have to plan for the people who are there. And if they were so concerned about this itinerant nature, you know, that if you're not a full-time resident, then we're not going to really worry about you, then the whole spring break thing starts to make a little bit more sense about why they let people come down there who weren't residents, party their asses off, spread the disease, and then go back to all these different states. All right? So that's the statement for the state doesn't make a lot of sense. You're going to hear more about this. We'll be right back. Let's bring in D. Lemon. I want to thank you for watching, of course, CNN Tonight with my man starts right now. I want to read you a quote that Rosalie gave to me um, tonight. Uh, Don, listen to this. Listen to this. Hold on. I got to get it here. Hold on. Just give me a second. Um, listen to this. You want me to tell you your me code? This it's you heard four, three, seven. No, I'm kidding. Here it is. When I is replaced by we, uh-huh. even illness becomes wellness. That's from right. Malcolm X. Isn't that great and that apropos is. of right now? That is great. Look at Rose all woke. Malcolm X. Come on now, Rosalie. Yeah, strong. That is strong. That is I didn't strong. even believe it. When she sent it to me, I was like, who said that? She was like, Malcolm X. I said, check it twice. She was like, you shut up and use it. What were you all fired up about as I was getting plugged in? You're Something about Florida. What? Were you getting all fired up about spring They're hiding the death numbers. And- They're hiding the death numbers, and they put out a response about why, and they say, well, you really only want to count deaths by residents. And if you're not a resident here, we don't really count that, and that's what we're adjusting so for right now. So those people aren't Please. people? They don't matter? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. First of all, if you have a situation in your midst, it doesn't matter if it's coming from residents or non-residents. But I'll tell you what it does explain why they were so happy to let the spring breakers go down there and do stupid stuff and then go back to states all over the country carrying the virus. Yeah. Because they don't care about people who aren't residents. Late to close, early to open up. We'll see. I hope those numbers don't go up for the states who are opening up now, but I got to tell you, it doesn't look good, but I am praying. And by the way, your brother was on fire today talking about the people politicizing this uh, pandemic. And I think a lot of people agree with him. That's all I'll say. I got to I got I think go that quick. it's a hard spot. It's a hard spot. No, no, no. Take the time, do your show. I'll be watching. All right, brother. I'll see you later. I love you. Have you a will. good night. Love you too. This- Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.